Galatians is generally believed to be the first book, the first letter that Paul wrote. And what was the situation and the circumstance that Paul felt compelled to write? Was it persecution from outside, or was there a theological, a doctrinal controversy that has infected the church? See, a teaching had come into the church that Paul felt compelled that he had to counter, no matter what, at all costs, because it was centered to the gospel message. Righteousness by faith. It is what ignited Luther during the Reformation, looking for a God who was merciful, and he wasn't seeing that God in the Catholic Church the way it was presented. In fact, the Catholic Church then and does to this day denies the fact that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was sufficient for our salvation. You have to go through purgatory to be purged. My Bible tells me that I am purged by the blood of Christ and his alone. And Paul had to take a stand for this at all costs, even if he stood alone, because it is the message of the gospel. And today... We need to have that faith, the faith of Abraham, because the controversy of the covenant, of the grace in God's new covenant that seeped into the church exists to this day. That's why there's so many different denominations, because everybody goes off their own way in their own direction. Last December, if you were here, I gave a sermon called The Last Will and Testament of Jesus Christ. If you weren't here, please, I encourage you to go out and listen to it. Because in the sermon, what I laid out for you was the fact that if we're going to look and understand God's grace, we cannot understand God's grace in a dictionary fashion. The definition of grace being unmerited favor should be leave us with unsatisfied, unsatisfactory. Because, see, God is love. And love is what? A doctrine? Or is God love about intimacy, about relationships? Grace is about relationships. I remember when I began studying a few years ago about covenants, and I was struggling with this concept of what's the difference between a covenant and a promise, because there are thousands of promises God gives in the scriptures. What makes a covenant so special? And I suddenly came to the realization that what makes it special is that God, in a promise, simply says that if you do this, I'll do this. You don't even have to believe in God. He allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. If you honor your father and mother, may your days be long. There are cultures that honor their, their, their fathers and their mothers and have reverence for the older people And what are they blessed with? Longer life, even though they deny the one who is the author of life. But in a covenant, it defines the relationship. This is why when when Jeremiah was inspired to talk about the new covenant, he doesn't leave it and sit back and say that that God will simply write the laws on your hearts and your minds. He takes it one step further. He sits back and says, God is as I was a Husband to you. There is no relationship more intimate 
than a relationship between a husband and a wife. And God was using this analogy to sit back and say, this is the intimacy that should exist between us. There shouldn't be any separation. Jesus said, be one as I am one with the Father. The intimacy of it, and that is what separates a covenant from a promise, because there's intimacy with that. And so we pick up. And so when Paul is addressing this issue, I thought it was interesting. Because people in the Jewish community had a great reverence for David. David, in fact, is the one who's mentioned in the scriptures more than any other person other than God. Almost a thousand times in scriptures. More than three times that of Abraham. But yet, when it came time to deal with the gospel message, Paul wasn't inspired to go to the life of David. Even though we see grace poured out through David, he went back to whom? He went back to Abraham. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis 15. God has already called Abraham out into the land of Cana, and he's given him a promise that this land is going to be given to him and his descendants. But Abraham is, is struggling a little bit, and he comes to God and sits back, and he says that, I know you've given this promise. Uh, is it going to be, is the heir, he, he, he doesn't have an heir, and he asks, is it going to be Eleazar, my servant? He doesn't mention Lot. He says, it's going to be Eleazar, my servant, who's loyal to me. And God says, no. And that begins with our scriptures. And he said, and he brought him outside, and he says, look up towards the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. And listen to these next words. And he believed in the Lord and accounted to him for righteousness. Paul repeated these words in Galatians, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was in Romans where Luther discovered the words, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. I have a question for you. If you believe someone, should not your actions reflect in that belief? At this point in his walk with God, did Abraham's actions reflect unfettered belief? Keep in mind, this is not a trick question. God declared him righteous. Does God lie? God can see from beginning to end. We hear all the time in scriptures that how the scriptures... That, that unlike Western culture where we think cause and then effect, God thinks effect and then the cause because he can see the end and he looks. My question is, is did Abraham have faith? Yes, he did. God said it did. Was it fully mature yet? That is the question. You have to find the answer for yourselves. According to his action, what happens next? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. If 
you know what happened in chapter 16, God has given Abraham the promise that he will have an heir and it will be from his own loins. But like most of us, we tend to get a little impatient when God doesn't fulfill his promises on our timetable. Am I the only one that's ever been guilty of that? So Abraham tries to fulfill God's promise of having an heir through what? I guess God needs a little help. We've never done that either, have we? And so God reiterates his covenant promise to Abraham, saying, no, it's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be someone who's going to come from your own loins. It's not going to come through human effort because it is my promise. Pick up with verse 10 and 11. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be what? Circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a what? A sign of a covenant between me and you. My question is this. What is the meaning behind that sign? It's interesting that I went and searched through multiple commentaries in and out of our community of faith. And everybody describes circumcision and talks about what circumcision is. But, you know, I couldn't find in a single commentary where they actually ever came out and said, this is the spiritual meaning, intent behind it. I've read literally a dozen books on covenants in and out of our community of faith. I've read dozens and dozens of articles and skimmed over that many more. Finally, I discovered what the truth is, and it didn't come through me. It came from an author. Here's what the most common definition and what most scholars subscribe circumcision to mean. If I am not loyal in faith and obedience to the Lord, may the sword of the Lord cut off me and my offspring as I have cut off my foreskin. What do you think of that statement? Let me read it again. This is what most scholars who, comment, who do make a comment on the, 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 the spiritual meaning is, if I am not loyal in faith and obedience to the Lord, may the sword of the Lord cut me and my offspring as I have cut off my own foreskin. I have a question. Can any of us here be fully obedient to God? on our own power. See, I have a problem with that statement. I don't have a problem with the faith part. I have a problem with the obedience part. And I'm going to give you what I believe the purpose and ministry of what circumcision was intended to believe. And it is biblically based. Just said a little bit differently than the way Paul put it. Circumcision Keep in mind, God is now getting upfront and personal with Abraham, is he not? 
You don't get any more personal than this. Circumcision will be a perpetual reminder to Abraham and his descendants of the utter futility and waywardness of trying to fulfill God's promise, be they physical or spiritual, by human efforts. Let me read it again. Circumcision is a perpetual reminder to Abraham and his descendants of the utter futility and waywardness of trying to fulfill God's promise by human effort. Is that not what Paul was trying to say in Galatians when he compared the old and the new covenant to Sarah and Hagar? See, in Hagar, Abraham tried to fulfill God's promise by whose effort? By his effort, human effort. And God says, "Uh uh-uh. I will put the enmity between thy seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There is no me involved. It is God alone. See, true love and obedience cannot come through human effort. We live in a world today, today where there are a lot of humanists, and these humanist concepts are seeping into the church. I received an email just earlier this week from, from one of the newsletters that subscribes and sits back and says that we need to uplift the dignity of the family and of unity, and I agree, we do. But you can't do it by passing laws. Until the change of the heart occurs, that will never exist. There hasn't been a law yet passed by man that has ever, ever been able to convert the heart. You may be able to control behavior. You may be able to sit back and say, you don't do this, I'm going to punish you. But it doesn't bring about a conversion of the heart. We see this even in our own country today. A darker side that was in the underbelly is now coming out. This is why Paul in Galatians said, I have been crucified with Christ. Say it with me. It is no longer I who live, but what? Christ in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This, I believe, is the message of circumcision that should have been carried forth. Turn with me very quickly to Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 through 26. God has appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And uh, God has told Moses, I am going to deliver my people. But as he's on the way, (coughs) there's a problem, isn't there? What did Moses not do? He didn't circumcise his son. Picking up with Exodus 4, chapter 12. Verses 24 through 26. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him, being Moses. Then Zipporah took a sharp knife and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet. Not a very good thing to do, actually. And said, surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go, God. And then he said, she said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Most commentators sit back and say that the reason for this is as God was sending Moses as a leader. And if there was something, and Moses had to be impeccable 
before his people. If he sent Moses and he had not circumcised his son as the covenant promise, how would it have looked? And I agree with that. I don't disagree. But I believe the message was much greater than that, not limited to that. Because who was going to deliver God's people? God himself, by his own mighty power. Remember, Moses thought he could deliver people himself by the sword. And so to me, I believe God was sending a very upfront and personal message to Moses as a reminder, I am sending you as my chosen instrument. But to put it in the modern vernacular, don't get a big head about yourself because it's not going to be you. It will be me that delivers. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot deliver ourselves. Turn with me now to Exodus 12. I'm going to pick up with verse 38. They're now getting ready for the Passover. The plagues have occurred. The last one is about to befall. Now, the Passover is what's referred to uh, by theologians as a threshold covenant. Now, in a threshold covenant, you would make a sacrifice. You would pour the blood down on the ground, usually at the threshold of the house, or if this was as a treaty between two nations, you would do it at the border. You would pour it on the ground. And then, as, as you enter into the covenant, you would step over the blood. The value of the sacrifice determined the value of you considered the relationship. So if it's the difference between sacrificing a small animal versus a large bull. Christ is our Passover. He is that threshold. It is his blood that is poured out. It is his threshold we cross over. This is why in Hebrews, when the author talks about how much, if those who died under Moses' law, how much more so the trample, the grace of God, the blood of Christ, and treat it. Because, see, if I was coming into a covenant relationship and has come to the threshold, but let's say I didn't value you, I didn't value the relationship, what would I do? Would I step over the blood? Or would I step on it to show my disdain? And that's the imagery that the author of Hebrews wanted us to understand. We're doing communion next week. My counsel to you is that if you are not right with all your brothers and sisters, don't participate. Turn to God for healing. Because if you participate in the Passover, in a celebration of the Lord's Supper, and you have something against your brother, what have you done? The Bible says in such instance, what happens? There is no more sacrifice. Picking up with verse 38, and I want to emphasize this. A mixed multitude went up with them also, the flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. What's your understanding of a mixed multitude? To me, it would tell me this. That there were more than people, that the people that were coming out, there were more than just those who could say their father was Abraham. That it may included slaves, maybe even some Egyptians and others that were living in Egypt. But God puts a very specific 
requirement. Drop down to verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall what? Eat of it. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have what? Circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. Going down to verse 49, one law shall be for the native and for the stranger among you. Everyone who is to participate in Passover, the males were to be circumcised. If we are going to participate in a new covenant, Passover, we also need to be circumcised. See, salvation has always been available to everyone. God simply chose Israel as his messenger. And my hope and prayer is that we understand that we, if we're going to call ourselves a remnant, that we understand what our role as a remnant is, because being a remnant is not being exclusive. Being a remnant carries responsibility, great responsibility. It means we need to be pillars of truth so that those who are seeking truth can see it and make a decision for themselves. Israel was to be that. They lost sight of it. Sin has a nasty habit of repeating itself. I hope it doesn't repeat with us. So what was the message of circumcision in the case of Passover? I believe the message was the same that was given to Abraham. The same message that I believe was given to Moses. It was saying to the people... Remember Abraham? He tried to fulfill my promise on human effort. When you come into a covenant relationship with me, I will write the law in your hearts and your minds. You can't do it on your own human effort. That is the message that should have been on their mind. It's interesting, in Exodus 19, and I'm just going to go very quickly here, um, this is just before God speaks the Ten Commandments, and let me ask you a question. Um, those of you who have been married, have you been to ceremonies of marriage, do you write your vows or do you speak them in front of an audience? You what? You speak them. God spoke the Ten Commandments. I am convinced utterly in my heart to this day because of those words of Jesus. In the words of Ezekiel, in the words of Hosea, and the others who from that point forward compared Israel's unfaithfulness to a harlot, that the Ten Commandments can best be viewed as nothing more than wedding vows. What are wedding vows the basis of? To love, honor, and serve one another. And what are the Ten Commandments about? To love, honor, and serve one another. Picking up in Exodus 19, verse 7. So Moses came and called for the elders and the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him, giving him instructions. Then all the people answered together and said... 
You know, this kind of sounds like me after my uh, baptismal vows. All the Lord has said, we will do. They have gone through the ten plagues. They've gone through the wilderness. And they were just such a faithful bunch, weren't they? Every bit as faithful as we are when we sit back, at least for me. I can only speak for myself. I can remember when I was baptized. I thought in my mind, I will do what? I will never, ever sin against the Lord. The moment that thought popped into my mind, I was already guilty. Because I was guilty of pride. Israel acted presumptuously. Imagine writing and getting into a contract or a negotiation or a covenant, and you say, I'll do whatever you want before you even know what the person is going to ask. (coughs) Not too many people would do that, would they? Israel does this before God speaks the Ten Commandments. And remember, the Ten Commandments were later what? Written on what? Tablets of the covenant. And they were placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. Covenant is what? Defines relationships. If you try, someone asked me the question a few weeks ago in Sabbath school. When Paul said we're not under the law but under grace, I don't understand, and it's a perfect question that has to be. Every one of us, if we're honest, have had to ask that question, and I hope that you have come up with the correct answer. You should understand that law and grace is like taking, trying to mix oil and water. They don't mix. They're contrary to one another. See, the law requires what? 100% obedience, and if you violate, what happens? There has to be a penalty. Grace says, I'm going to abrogate penalty. And that actually is unlawful. This is why Paul understood that you can't mix grace and the law. Now, I'm not saying that it's a license to sin, which is what many people use it for. When someone shows, I think the most powerful example on this side of heaven that we can understand of grace, aside from the cross, is marriage. Not that any of us men have ever done anything to cause our wives to be upset with us about, right? Or conversely, no, no wife in here has ever done anything for their husband to be upset, right? When is grace needed in marriage? When everything is going smooth and functioning properly? Or when there's a problem and when there's friction? It's a rhetorical question, not a trick question. See, the fundamental problem that I have with Christianity today is is we look at God's grace as if an unfaithful spouse can remain unfaithful. That's how it's viewed to me, an unfaithful spouse. Why do you think in Revelation 17, Babylon is described as a harlot? And she is a mother of harlots. What is a harlot spiritually? Someone who claims to be a follower in the Old Testament was someone who claimed to be a follower of God, but yet did everything opposite. 
And that definition is true in the New Testament. Someone who claims to follow Christ, and yet they ignore what he taught. In a covenant relationship, oh, honey, he was only one woman. I don't think there's a woman here, or, or only, oh, it was only one man. Is there anyone here that would accept that? If we, evil as we are, as Jesus said, would not accept it, do you think God, who is holy, would accept that? Why do you think the bride of Christ is described as a chaste virgin? Christ cannot marry a harlot. Fortunately, because I'm a sinner, he does the cleansing. In Exodus 24, after the Ten Commandments had been given and they entered into the covenant, the people did the same thing. All the Lord has said we will do. Turn with me to Joshua 5. Verses 2 through 7 is what I'm going to look at. This is now they are ready to, they are now at the end of their 40-year wandering. They're getting ready to enter into the promised land. Um, Moses is not allowed to lead them in. Why was Moses not allowed to lead them? Right at the last moment, he kind of forgot something, didn't he? When the people cried out and says, we need water, and the Lord tells them to speak to the rock, Moses, in his anger, struck the rock. And to make sure that this wasn't just a slip, he hit it a second time. And so the Lord said, because you, and what did Moses say? Are we, referring to himself and Aaron, to bring forth water? Here he is in the cusp of the promised land, putting up with the people for 38 years. I can't imagine how our leadership puts up with us for 38 days, all alone 38 years. Should have got a little laugh. But here he is on the cusp. And he slips up. And God says, no. It's going to be Joshua who leads them into the promised land. Because the law can't get us there. See, the difference between the old and the new covenant is we get, if you haven't gotten it and figured it out yet, is that the old covenant had no power for us to overcome and to keep. The new covenant, God gives us that power. Pick up with Joshua 5. How does that power come about? We're going to see that. I'm going to pick up with verse 2. They're now ready to enter into the promised land. And they were not, during the wilderness journey, they were not allowed to do what? They were not allowed to celebrate Passover or circumcise their children. They're now getting ready. At this time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again a second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the heel of their foreskin. And this is the reason for Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness from the way. And after they had come out, for all the people who had come out, out had been circumcised. But all the people born in the wilderness on the way came to Egypt had not been circumcised. Question, anybody know 
what the name Joshua means? Remember in, in the Hebrew, names are often given names, have meanings to them. We try to just pick randomly. But what did the name Joshua mean? Anybody know? Help is Jehovah, or Jehovah helps. Do you know what the name Jesus means? Jehovah helps. See, Jesus is simply the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. Who is it that circumcised the people of Israel before they entered the Promised Land? It was Joshua. Who is it that circumcises our heart before we enter into the Promised Land? Joshua. Jesus. Oh, there's so much more that we could talk about regarding circumcision. We have the scenario where Paul, he's talking about, he's fighting in Galatians, and I've got to bring up this point. He's fighting in Galatians against circumcision. But if you follow the history in the book of Acts, we see that there appears to be a bit of a contradiction, doesn't there? Because in Acts 15, we have the the point, the marker in the sequence of the church where the issue of circumcision was now being an issue. And it talks about in Acts where people were going out and said, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. And Paul was fighting about that. And he argued against that vehemently. He said back, and he said, if you're going to be going to circumcise, you need to keep all the law. And there isn't a single one of us is capable of keeping all the law. But here's where the contradiction appears to come, because in the very next chapter... Paul is traveling with Timothy, who was a Greek. His father was a Greek. And he wasn't circumcised. And what does Paul do? I read it to you. 16, Acts 16, 1 through 3. Then he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but the father was also Greek. And he was well spoken by the brethren who at Lystra and Iconia. Paul wanted to take him to go with him, and he took him and, what? Circumcised him because of the Jews who were in the region, for they knew that his father was Greek. Is Paul contradicting himself by circumcising Timothy when just prior he was arguing against circumcision? I would submit to you in saying, no, there is no contradiction. Because what Paul was fighting against was the meaning behind circumcision. Remember the promise given to Abraham, an heir from your own loins. And when he went to sacrifice Isaac, what did Abraham prophesy? God will provide the sacrifice. Who ultimately was Isaac pointing to? Jesus. God himself provided the sacrifice. This is what Paul was fighting against. He was fighting against the principle of the idea that people were sitting back and saying you had to be circumcised physically to be saved. And Paul said, no, I'm fighting against that. I don't have a problem to to circumcise just to alleviate any potential tension. But not as a condition of salvation. We need to remember that in our own traditions. Finally, 
I will lead you with this. We were talking about it this morning in Sabbath school, how God will use the physical to teach spiritual. When Jesus sat down with Nicodemus, he said a man must be born again. Nicodemus thought he meant what? Physical birth, but Jesus was pointing to a spiritual birth. When he's with the woman at the well, same thing. I will give you water you'll never first. Where's your bucket? She was thinking physical. Jesus meant spiritual. You see it all throughout the scriptures. Physical pointing to spiritual. Who is Jew? Paul actually deals with that in Romans. Chapter 2, verse 25, beginning there. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you who are lawbreakers, circumcision has become uncircumcision because there's been no change of character. Therefore, if the uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? He gets very philosophical here. He will not physically uncircumcise if he feels the law. Judge you who even your written code and circumcision are transgressors of the law. And in these powerful words, for he is not Jew who is one outwardly, nor is it circumcision which that is outwardly in the flesh. But he who is Jew, who is what? Inwardly, change of character, circumcision is that of the heart. In Colossians, Paul talked about how it is Jesus, Joshua, the same way it was Joshua who circumcised the people of Israel. It is through by holding his life, his death, in the hope of the resurrection that he circumcises our hearts. I hope my prayer today is that every one of us here has a circumcised heart by Jesus. I hope there's no one out there that thinks that their skill with a knife is so good that you can give yourself open-heart surgery. I wouldn't trust myself with it. And for that, the people said, Amen.